And for all, anybody that's ever done alcohol, when you when you feel that first buzz, you're just like, whoa, what is this? Now I feel good from the beer and I feel good from the acceptance of my friends. And that one decision or that one indecision that I made that day changed the trajectory of my life forever. So they all came up to see me on Christmas Eve. And the first time I laid eyes on my niece, Skylar, was through plexiglass. And uh, there's this 1% of my, my life, my heart, that I just wasn't ready to yield to God yet. There I was, you know, from a little boy growing up in church to now sending prostitutes out to men on Christmas Day. I've never been scared of anything, honestly. I just, I just have never been scared of anything. But I was so scared of of my uh, before my first day in prison that that I mean it consumed me. But we we go into solitary confinement, and I'm laying there. I'm thinking about my life. I'm like, this is the sum of all the decisions I've made up to now, and this is it. Have you ever given some of your life to God? Not all of your life, just some of your life. What happens to the part you don't give to God? Who controls that part? Is it me or is it the enemy? What if I give 99% of my life to Jesus? Isn't that enough? Does giving the enemy a tiny 1% of my life really endanger me? Could that 1% eventually lead me to turn my back on God? What if I have turned my back on God? What if I decide to give all of myself to the enemy? Does God still want me? Does he still pursue me? If I turn my back on God, can he ever use me again? Or is my life just a dry wasteland forever? These are questions that I want to ask our guest today as he shares his incredible life change story with us. My guest is zooming in all the way from Texas. So, hey, friend, why don't you introduce yourself and let the listeners know who you are? Glad to be here. I am J. Dan Gum. You can call me J, J. Dan, whatever. Uh, a lot of people are like, where's where J. Dan come from? Well, I'm from Texas. So anytime you can get two names in there in one sentence, then, you know, like Billy Bob. So why don't you tell the listeners where you were born and then kind of where you were raised as a, as a youth? I'm born and raised in Dallas, Texas. Uh, I never set foot in a public high school or a grade school or anything. We always went to private school. My mom and dad had all of us after they both came to Christ and got married. So we were raised in a Christian home. We were raised in, uh, we, we started out, I like to say I got the worst end of it because right when I finished sixth grade and going into seventh, we moved from Baptist to Pentecostal. And when you take a junior high person who's going through all kinds of changes physically anyway, from Baptist environment to Pentecostal environment, that was just my junior high years were the craziest years of my life. But I had uh, I grew up with an older sister, a younger brother, and a younger sister, so I was a middle child. And uh, but my brothers, all my all my brothers and sisters are are we were all a year and a half apart from each other. So whenever you were young, and you mentioned that your parents received Christ or became a Christian before you were born, and so you were kind of, you know, God was included in your growing up. Did you personally have any God moments? Did you give your life to Christ as a, a youth, or was that later in your life? No, actually, at eight years old, I remember 
there's two things I remember in, in my in my younger years, uh, two commitments that I made that changed my life. One, when I was four, and I chose to start cheering for the Pittsburgh Steelers. And then when I was eight years old uh, is when I prayed the prayer in church to accept Jesus as my personal Lord and Savior. Now, um, we'll get into it later, but at that point, I know I prayed the prayer and meant it, so I know I was going to heaven. But for the most part, it was all up here. The, the prayer was from the heart, but the living it out, it was all up here. So I will say, as I got older, fifth, sixth grade, and then especially when they uprooted us from one church and school to go to another church and school, I became very angry at my mom and dad. Very angry and almost resentful, almost resentful for any of the Christ, Christianity religious stuff at this point because they made me lose all my friends. We were going to a school that didn't have football. I was looking forward to play junior high football, uh, and it was horrible. I mean, I, I that's when I first remembered how quickly I could have an anger issue. So you were angry because they moved you from one school to the other and you lost some friends or whatever. Now, do you feel like the anger kind of pushed you a little bit uh, into rebellion? And what did that look like as you got into junior high and high school? So, so here's the deal. So I had two sets of friends. So when in junior high, when my mom takes me away from both sets of friends, now I don't have any athlete friends and I don't have any nerd friends. So now I'm at this new school trying to learn a new environment, trying to learn a new doctrine. I mean, I just got saved at eight years old, mom. And now Pentecostal and Baptist doctrines are so vastly different that I'm just, my hair is being pulled out. And so, so that's when the anger Start, and I started I started acting out in junior high towards that. Um, the, the original question that you just asked was, did it push you a little into rebellion? No, it pushed me a lot into rebellion. Um, I was already as a junior high, seventh grade, trying to find ways to get back at my parents for what they did to me. Um, and I, be, I made my first F. I made straight A's through sixth grade. And I purposely, willfully would not turn homework in, but then you know, my mom found out about that. So I just started doing the homework wrong. I started purposely answering questions wrong on tests to make an F. Uh, and I thought that would, you know, make me feel feel good about getting back at them. But that just got me more spankings. That got me more tension, grounding, everything. So then I tried to find a different way of getting back at my parents. And so I purposely began looking for the people that I know my parents would not approve of me hanging out with, you know, and it's the ones where they always say, I don't want you hanging around with Johnny because he's a bad influence on you. I was looking for those people. And and those were the cool people at the, at the school in junior high at that point anyway. So I began, but I didn't look like them. I came from the high and tight Baptist. You had to, if it's touching your ears, you're sinning, you know, if it's touching your collar. To Pentecostal, they had long hair and hair parted in the middle and wings and all these, you know, mullets. And I'm just like, and I'm like, mom, can I grow my hair long? And she wouldn't let me. So I didn't look like any of my friends. And so that was even harder for them to do it, and, and it drove the the the, the stake into you know, the resentment hard a little bit a little bit deeper. And so I just my goal was not to make good grades, uh, not to excel in anything, but try to find acceptance from the cool crowd. And it didn't happen in junior high, it didn't happen in ninth grade. Between ninth and tenth grade year, the summer. Uh, I, they said, Hey, do you want to come work with us? We're working with some of our older brothers cleaning out new construction homes. And I said, yeah, absolutely. So I go work with them and all day we're drinking water to stay hydrated. It's hot in Texas. And then all of a sudden 
at the end of the day, they pull out this other cooler and this other cooler has uh Coors Light in it and they're, and they start drinking. I mean, I mean, and guys my age, 13 and 14 years old, aren't even hesitating, just pulling beer out of a cooler. And I'm like, these guys act like they do this all the time. My heart started beating. And I'm like, gosh, what do I do? Do I, right then I felt for the first time, the tension between acceptance from friends and honoring my mother and father. And, and I didn't know what to do. And I stood there in a very indecisive moment. And before I could make a decision for myself, somebody threw me a beer. And now I'm a guy in front of other guys with a beer in his hand and I have to drink it. And so I, I, I said, all right, in my mind, I'm going to chug it really fast. So I don't even taste it. Cause I don't even know what it tastes like. And as soon as I tasted it, it was the worst tasting thing I'd ever tasted. My, I hated beer. If you saw me in my party days with a beer in my hand, I was already drunk and I didn't know what I was drinking and somebody else bought it for me. <clears throat> so I'm chugging it. And again, I'm just like, I'm just trying to get through it because it's horrible. And all of a sudden they start cheering my name. Jaden, Jaden, Jaden. And I'm like, okay, now I'm not drinking beer anymore. Now I'm drinking acceptance. Now I'm drinking inclusiveness. Now I'm drinking, we, we, we got you now, you know? And I'm like, threw that one down. Give me another one. Now I'm making my own decisions. Give me another one. And by the end of that chugging that second beer, I felt the buzz. And for all, anybody that's ever done alcohol, when you, when you feel that first buzz, you're just like, whoa, what is this? Now I feel good from the beer and I feel good from the acceptance of my friends. And that one decision or that one indecision that I made that day changed the trajectory of my life forever. And I started hanging out with those guys the first 30 days of our sophomore year. Uh, you know, the gym was also the worship center for our church. And the, the stage was a stage for the, the choir and the worship team and the pastors, but underneath the stage was all the tumbling mats and the wrestling mats and different things for athletics. And so for the first 30 days of my sophomore year, we, we all snuck under the, under the stage and smoked weed, drank alcohol. We took a lighter and hairspray. I don't know if you're familiar with what, what, what a hairspray can and a lighter can do that torch, you know, and, and then we had Visine to make sure, you know, we got the red out of our eyes and, First 30 days of school, we never saw the lunchroom. That's what we did during lunch. But the private school that we, the original one that we went to, my mom taught at, they came to her and said, listen, you know, um, you know the rules. If you teach here, your kids have to go to school here. And if Jaden doesn't straighten up, he can't come back. And if he can't come back, you don't have a job. So when I heard that, I was like, all right, I like to party, but I don't want my mom to lose her job. So I kind of went down low undercover and, uh, and, and, and I really, that's when I really learned how to manipulate whatever environment I'm, I'm in. If I was around my Christian friends, I knew how to manipulate them to make them think I was on fire for God. If I was around party friends or hanging out in public with people I knew did smoking and drinking, then I, I knew how to manipulate them into, into knowing that I was a party animal just like them. And that's when I realized that it was it, it, it was easy at the time to live 50 50 half half for the world half for half for uh for the kingdom of god so let me ask you a question would you consider yourself an addict back in high school when you were doing all this rebellion stuff or or uh do you feel like that was more a learned behavior for you great question uh i didn't like beer at all once i tasted jack daniels 
I fell in love with Jack Daniels. I got a tattoo of Jack Daniels on my arm because that's how much I loved him. Um, they back then, the two years that I went as junior and senior in high school, I didn't drink at all. I, that's that's how much I wanted my mom not to lose her job. So I don't believe at that point that I had drank long enough to get to that deeper level of addiction where the chemistry in your brain starts changing and you can't do without it. I don't think I was at that point yet. But when I graduated high school, went to college, the two years I was at college, that's when I, 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 I believe that that's when I became an alcoholic. So my first two years of college are, are you know, 17, 18 and 19. So, uh, so I, and, and by that time, like I said, I'm already an alcoholic now. And I began getting public intoxications, minor in possessions, drunken disorderlies. I began racking up charges and crimes, be, you know, that are alcohol related. And, uh, and, and it just got, it just kept getting worse and worse. Then I turned 21 and, uh, and I got my first DWI, um, on a Friday night, I was working at a law firm in their mail room. And once a month they have what they call happy hour. And they just set up the, one of the floors and they just have all the free alcohol, free liquor, free beer, free everything. And I went, the first happy hour I went to with that law firm, um, I, I got a DWI driving home that night. And that was on a Friday night. And then because I'm an overachiever, the following Tuesday night, I got another DWI. Uh, and then I got my third DWI, like kind of within the next year, December 16th, 1994. And uh, that, that third DWI, I hadn't even gone to court for the first two. So, so I have three now that are bunched up that I got to take care of all at once. So December 16th, 1994, uh, I, I get arrested. Now nobody's bailing me out. All these other public intoxications and all these other ones, the DWI, people were bailing me out. Now nobody's bailing me out. So I sat in jail on Christmas, 1994. And my, my niece, Skylar, my, my older sister's first daughter, was born December 8th, a week before I got arrested. And I hadn't even seen her yet. So they all came up to see me on Christmas Eve. And the first time I laid eyes on my niece, Skylar, was through plexiglass. And that's when I realized, that's when I realized that my decisions that I make, good or bad, affect everyone in my life, not just me. And so um, I, I got out from 1995 to 1997. Uh, I chose, you know, I, I was on two-year probation. So if I drank, I was going back, to, I was going to prison. But um, they gave me time served for the first two. And then they gave me a two-year probation for the third one. But because I got them all in before 1995, January of 1995, Texas passed the law that on your third DWI or more, it's a felony. So I got those first three in before they became a felony. So I got a two-year probation. I'm serving God. All, almost all in for God. 99% is what I like to say. And uh, there's this 1% of my, my life, my heart, that I just wasn't ready to yield to God yet. But on the surface, you couldn't tell the difference between my 99% and what people perceive to be 100%. Because I was, I was leading worship. I was teaching Bible studies. I was doing all that. But they, nobody saw. And I only did that 1% by myself when no one was looking. And, and my 1% that I wasn't ready to yield to, to, to God was cigarette smoking. I loved Jack Daniels, and I loved to gamble, and I loved cigarette smoking. And, and it did happen very often, one or two, you know, one or two days a month maybe. And, and you know what? The devil's patient. He didn't bother me for two years. 
I got blessed. God was blessing my 99% uh, like crazy. Uh, but the devil just sat back and go, okay, well, I got he's, I got a hook in. I got a little hook in. He's giving me 1%, and I'm just going to wait for the perfect storm. And at the end of the school year, like the summer of 97, uh, the, the job comes to me and says, you know, we don't need your job anymore. So they let me go. And then my girlfriend comes to me and says um, she wants to break up for another guy. That's a pretty bad week. <laughs> you lose your job and your girl. I mean, there's country songs that make millions of dollars on stuff like that. So instead of saying, okay, God, what, you know, what's going on? Instead of crying out to God, my probation's over. I go smoke a cigarette. That's when the devil goes, ha ha. I got the perfect storm. I got the perfect time to exploit that 1% that he's given me. And so the devil came and said, Hey, look what serving God got you. You know, the devil loves to plant a little bit of logic or truth into his lies. That's how we, that's how we believe the lie. He likes to throw that logic in there because yeah, I was serving God. And yeah, those things did happen to me, but it wasn't God's fault. He didn't do those things to me. Uh, and so he said, the devil said, you're already smoking. You might, as, you might as well start drinking again. So now he's exploited that 1% to get me to go full on back to my old ways. And, and it worked. At that point, summer of 97, I just said, you know what? I've had enough of this. I've had enough of God, Christians, children of God. I don't want to be a children of God anymore. And I literally looked up to him and told him, I'm done. I don't want you anymore. I don't want the things of you. I walked away from God. At that point, I was so mad at God, and I was so mad at all my Christian friends that I I wanted nothing to do with any of it anymore. And I walked away. And at that point, when you when you reject something, when you reject God to the to the degree you reject God, you make yourself available to the devil. To the degree you reject the devil, you make yourself available to God. So if you go all in on God, the devil ain't got no room left. If you go all, if you reject God 100%, guess what the devil gets? All of you. And I didn't get on my knees and pray to Satan or nothing like that. But by rejecting God to the degree that I did, Satan's like, okay, I got 100% of this dude now. And at that point, man, um, just life just came unhinged. But I was having fun. It came unhinged, but I was having fun. And I, I needed a job at one point. Uh, I got a job as a bar manager at a hotel. You know, imagine that as an alcoholic, you know, who hadn't had a, a, a drink in two years. Now it's coming back to the, the alcoholic field. And, you know, and then I got fired from there because I drank too much. And then I was looking for another job and I saw an ad in the Dallas Morning News. For those of you under 40, we used to look for jobs in the Dallas Morning News, the, the newspapers. <laughs> job wanted that, all right? Um, and so I saw this ad, it said bodyguard driver needed. I'm like, Ooh, that sounds exciting. Adrenaline. So I, I answer the ad. I go to the address. I'm walking up to the door and I see forced entertainment, bachelorette shows, lingerie shows. I'm like, Oh, this is weird. Okay. So I go in, I interview, I'm sitting there at this man's desk, you know, clean cut, maybe mid thirties, early, early forties, white guy. And he's telling me, he's talking in terms of drivers and dancers and uh, full service and not full service and all this stuff. And I'm just like, okay, I think I'm talking to a pimp. 
You know, uh, it, it's a it's a nice, classy looking organization. But I think I'm talking to somebody who runs prostitutes, and and the drivers just drive the girls, and that's what it was, you know. And um, and but I said, you know what? I'm all in for the devil, so might as well try it. And the devil's like, hey, he's all in on me. Let's see what he can do. So at that point, the only drug I'd ever done was weed. But the first time I drove uh, a girl, before she even told me her name, before she even said anything, she said, do you have any drugs? And I'm like, no, I don't. But I can get some by the next time you ride with me. And that night I went to a club in Dallas, made a contact for uh, 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 methamphetamines, cocaine, and ecstasy. And I, and I, I began to sell drugs to every girl that got in my car. And, and, and some I just gave. I just part we partied on them. Um, but in that year and a half that I was there, I I just man, I grew stronger in the devil. I grew stronger in the, his ways, his people. I became deeper involved in that. I became. A, I mean, this was a big operation, like two hundred drivers, two hundred girls, and they had a, a booking room. They had all this stuff. It's a large, had a dispatch manager, and this is how how deep I went. On Christmas Day, they closed down. And I said, hey, there's some drivers and dancers that want to work on Christmas Day. Can we open? It's like, well, we don't have any dispatch managers to do it. I said, I'll do it. And they're like, all right. And, the, and the, for the first time, they let me manage the, the, all the shows. They called them shows going out. And there I was, you know, from a little boy growing up in church to now sending prostitutes out to men on Christmas Day. And I just I was like, but the money, I mean, I was making money, you know, and, but I got, I got, I got guns pointed at my head on that job because not every girl were, was prostitutes. Some of them were just con girls. They would, they would pretend like they're going to have sex with a, a guy and, and get the money and then hand the money out to the driver. And then that's when the guy would get mad. That's why the bodyguards were there. And, and I got all kinds of guns pointed, but I almost lost my life during, during that time. So let me ask you a question. You've, you've given a lot of information there. You know, what did you think about yourself? What did you think about Jay Dan? You know, you're doing all of that. Was there any guilt or was there any like, man, I shouldn't be doing this? Or you just felt, or were you just, I mean, you know, you were all in. Did you just ignore all of that and you were, you know, living the life, making money? And how did you feel about yourself? Well, I will say this when, when I rejected God's voice, hundred percent that opened the door to Jack Daniels voice and, and Jack Daniels gave me confidence, you know, just, he made me feel like I was invincible. He made me feel like I could do anything. You know, I mean, Jack Daniels was just what I ran through. He was the filter that I ran through everything, whether it was dating a girl, whether it was getting a job, whether it was whatever it was, you know, I mean, I would take a job based on, you know, okay, well, I'm going to be drunk the night before. So I want to make sure I have plenty of time to come into the job and sober. So that's how I would filter everything, even looking for a job. So I wasn't really feeling anything about myself. But, but what's interesting is when you look, when I look back at that part of my life, I met a girl in that, in that, uh, in that time. And she said, your name sounds familiar. And I said, Oh, okay. I said, what's your name? She said her name. And then I said, uh, she said, do you have a brother named? And I said, yes. And I said, wait a minute. Are your parents so-and-so and so-and-so? She's like, yeah. I'm like, we know each other from church. And so 
to know that I'm in one of the darkest places of my life, drugs, prostitution, all this stuff. It let me know that my mom's prayers of protection were working. Let me know that, that God was still watching me. It just, it was kind of his little wink, like, you know, you may think you're running for me, but let me just show you how much I'm still watching you. And we start talking and, and there was a moment where we were like, how did we end up here? You know, how did, how did you and I, cause I knew her family and she knew my family and we were like the families that, you know, those families at church. And, and, and so I was just like, well, I'm like, I mean, I'm just doing this for fun right now. It's just a crazy time in my life. I can leave whenever I want, but so can you. And she's like, no, I can't. I said, why? She said, because I'm dating so-and-so. And she said, you know, the pimp, the head guy. I'm like, well, so he he don't he doesn't own you, he doesn't control you. And she's like, I'm pregnant by him. I'm like, oh. So then we were we we start talking a lot more. And one of the other girls was like, Hey, I'm gonna start hanging out with y'all because so-and-so is getting jealous. He doesn't understand that y'all friends before and all this stuff. And so long story short, he eventually asked me to leave the company. And uh, so I did. Uh, At that point, I went back to work for Walmart and I really got heavier into Jack Daniels. I mean, a fifth a day or more. uh, There was a time when I was I was literally driving every day drunk uh, and and for two or three years every day. And the legal limit was point oh eight. And by that time, Jack Daniels, you know, my tolerance level was so high that 0.08 did not even give me a buzz anymore. So I could be driving without a buzz and be fine, but still be legally drunk, uh, according to the state of Texas. And so uh, at that point, you know, I I just started drinking a lot heavier. And then uh, but one night, one night I was coming home from work and I I decided tonight I'm going to eat a meal. And I'm going to have two drinks and drive home. And I live a mile away from the, the the restaurant. And I only had two drinks. I did not get drunk. I didn't get a buzz. These weren't even my regular bartender. So they weren't even really good drinks. So I'm driving home. And as soon as I turn left on my street, my house is right there. So I pull over. The roommate I'm living with parks in the driveway. I park on the street. So I park on the street. I see lights police lights turn on behind me for the first time they I could see the difference between red and blue most of the time they're purple uh because I'm drunk so this kid and I know a lot of the uh officers because I'm a manager at Walmart and they do they come and do the deposits and this guy was was a rookie and I didn't know him and he had a girl in the front seat of the car and so he started just throwing his machismo around and yelling at me to get out of the car and I pulled you over because you were swerving. I said, I said, officer, I didn't have time to swerve. I just turned left and then I pulled over here in front of my house. He goes, Oh, you live here? And I'm like, well, yeah. And so long story short, he, he gives me a field sobriety test first. And for the first time I pass it because I'm not drunk. I'm literally not drunk. And I said, I've only had two drinks and I really meant it this time. And so, but then he said, well, I need you to blow in this breathalyzer. And I said, no, I'm not going to do that. And because I refused, then he could arrest me on suspicion of drunk driving. So I said, I'll do a blood test, though. So they get all the blood tests set up at the station. And I'm already mad at him because I'm really not drunk. And I think he was just trying to impress the girl in the car. 
So they get ready to do the blood test. And I'm like, nah, I can't do this without my, my lawyer being here. And so that made them more mad. And they give me a court appointed attorney. I tell her my story that I don't believe, you know, that I, I was not drunk. She's like looking at my past and going, all right, whatever. And so she calls me and says, good news. I'm going to get your fourth DWI dismissed. I'm like, yes. So I go out and celebrate like an alcoholic and get my fifth DWI that night. On the same day that I found out I'm getting my fourth DWI dropped, I get my fifth DWI. And I was plastered that night. And she comes to see me in jail and she's like, you screwed yourself. You you messed up because if you go to trial for the fourth one, which was the only way to get it dismissed, if you go to trial for the fourth one, your first three are going to come up and your next, your fifth one's going to come up. And no jury is going to believe that you truly had, no matter what I say, it's going to look like trickery now because they're going to believe that you were drunk that night. And I was just like, okay. So I'm like, all right, what are they going to give me? And then she said, they're offering you five years for your fourth and five years for your fifth. And then she's like, listen, this is the best deal you're going to get because your first three and your fifth one, she said, they're, they're just not going to come down. And so you better take it. So I took it. Two weeks before I took it, there was a bond reinstatement hearing and trying to get reinstated my bond reinstated so I can go back out to work. And I went on the stand. The judge, judge looks at me and says, what are you trying to do here? And I said, I'm trying to get my bond back. And he looks at my past and he looks at me and he looks out at the court and says, you know, I don't see a very bright future for Mr. Gum. Bond denied. And then I went back to jail and I never got out at that point. And so right after that is when they, is when they, they did the sentencing. When the day came to read my sentence out, my dad and my, my two daughters, or not two daughters, two sisters were in the uh, courtroom. My mom didn't even show up because she did not believe I was going to prison. She's like, I didn't show up because I didn't think you were going to prison. And so my dad and my two sisters are there, and the judge reads, um, you know, State of Texas versus J.D.N. Gum, uh, and the account of fourth DWI, five years in prison, State of Texas versus J.D.N. Gum, fifth DWI, five, five years in prison. And my family just starts bawling. And, and I'm just like, you know, my heart was so hard at that point that even the tears of my family didn't move me. So at that point, you know, I was in, I was in the County jail, but then on July 16th, uh, Tuesday night, all-star game, I got to watch the all-star game in, in jail in County jail. Um, and after the all-star game, they came and said, gum, pack your stuff. You're leaving. You're catching chain is what they call it. Catching the chain bus. They call it a chain bus because you're in a big bus and you're chained to everybody else on the bus. Uh, they said, you're catching the chain bus to prison tomorrow morning, early at 3 a.m. So I was like, oh. man, day one in prison was crazy, crazy, yeah. crazy, crazy. Tell me about day one. I mean, that's got to be a shocker. I mean, what what were you thinking and what was it like? For the first time in my life, I, I was walking into something scared. I've never been scared of anything, honestly. I just, I just have never been scared of anything. But I was so scared of of my uh, before my first day in prison that that I mean it consumed me because I literally had everybody told me what it was going to be like. They said, "Oh, once you get to prison, it'll be easier than jail." But I jail was pretty easy for me, so I didn't know what what that prison was going to be like. 
and and the first day they're talking down to you like you're just the the worst piece of trash in the world and and you know sometimes what they say is not all wrong <laughs> i was a pretty bad dude i did a lot of bad things to a lot of bad people or to a lot of good people and um so it's like all of a sudden i'm on the top of the world now i i ain't nothing i am nothing and i'm just like i'm feeling my way out you know you you gotta, you gotta strip. You gotta spread. You gotta pull. You gotta do all this stuff to make sure that you ain't got nothing inside you, and any cavity of your body, and um, and then you're just stuck in this cage. They called it the K, the K tank, and you're just stuck in there for three days, and then and then you get moved to general population. And this one dude named Jerry came up and said, "Hey man, you hungry?" And I said, "Yeah." And this dude was not a Christian. This dude was not, uh, you know, nothing. He just came up out of nowhere and offered me food, and I and I and I and I'll never forget that. I'll never forget that. And so years later, I'm high fiving people coming into the gym, and I'm like, Hawk. And he turned, and I said Hawk, even though I knew his name wasn't Hawk. I said Hawk, and he turned. I said, Come here. I said, I know your name's not Hawk, but I can't remember what it is. I know you used to hang out with Hawk back at the Buster Cole unit. And he goes, yeah, my name's Jerry. I'm like, that's it. And I, and I got to share. I said, you gave me my first meal that wasn't from the chow hall or that brought to me on a tray in prison. And he, he, you could tell his eyes were like, oh, my gosh. He's like, I remember you. And, and at that, I mean, that's, a, that's an incredible story. God put me in his life for a reason. Uh, I got to lead him to the Lord. I got to get him in a program that he was trying to get into. And that guy gave me my first meal that was cooked in a white bowl made with ramen noodles and Frito, Frito corn chips and seasoning. It was just, it was incredible. I've got to interrupt. I mean, that, that I love how God intersects our lives with other people and what an incredible story. What a divine appointment. You know, he gave yeah. that to you, and then later you gave him the greatest gift you could possibly give. Wow, that's Amen. an amazing story. Amen. So, yeah, there I am in prison. Uh, I, I get caught up in the prison game, not gang, G-A-N-G, but game, G-A-M-E, and just start uh, doing parlay boards. That's gambling. Again, I love to gamble. Uh, I, got, I got four aces on my other cards. So whatever I loved, I tattooed it on my body. And, uh, and so – you know, I'm still, I'm still not serving the Lord, and I'm growing in the devil. So by September 18th, September 18th was the day that changed my life. I'm out in the what they call the host squads. The host squads are for people that first get to prison, and you're going to work. You're going to work, whether you're going to be a janitor inside the dorm, the offices, or whatever. The host squad is like the low man on the totem pole. You're going out, and you're you got your little hoe, garden hoe, and you're hoeing the uh, the, the squash and the all the stuff they're growing out there. And so we're out there or we're going out there. We're in two lines of, of 20. So we got 40 guys from multiple dorms and this one guy in our dorm that never came out to work all of a sudden is there working that day. And we're all like, what's this dude doing out here? Well, he was in the back of the line, the field boss on the, uh, the field boss on the correctional officer on the horse said, uh, said last two men carry the water cooler. So he tries to move up. Because he don't want to carry anything. The field boss says, hey, get back in line. You carry the cooler. He goes, I ain't carrying nothing. He goes, then dump the, dump the water out. 
And there was 39 of us that knew that he wasn't that stupid, but he didn't hesitate. He dumped our water out. Long story short, I get into a fight with this dude out in the, out in the host squad because he's chopping up all the plants. And he's doing it because he knows nobody's going to point to him and be a snitch. And uh, so I said, you know, I'll take care of him. And then, and then I started calling him names, names that men don't like to be called. He was an African-American gentleman, names that black people do not like to be called. I was calling him things. It was another tool in the devil's toolbox to get me to go stronger with him. And th- thoughts that names that never entered my mind ever. Now I'm calling this this gentleman that Jesus died for that's made in God's image. I'm calling him these names. And to me, even knowing that I worked at the escort service, I feel like that moment talking to another human being that way that I've never done before was the lowest moment of my life. And I think that's when God was like, okay, all right, I got to do something about you because you're just not paying attention. So at that point we get into a fight and out of nowhere, it was, it was like a movie. Six trucks come out of nowhere, shotguns drawn. Uh, the, the guy on the horse had his gun drawn. Uh, six other lieutenants and sergeants come running out. They're all, they all got their guns on us. So I put my hands up. Long story. Try to, I'm trying to make a long story short, but we, we go into steg, segregation, administrative segregation, solitary confinement. I get into my cell, stripped of every earthly property, no property. I have no rights. I have nothing stripped and I'm just laying there and I'm laying there I'm thinking about my life I'm like this is the sum of all the decisions I've made up to now and this is it and I'm just laying there it was about 9 a.m and all day I just lay there and it's quiet there's chatter in the background but I actually don't even hear it and it's it's just total peace and quiet well not peace but quiet till about 10, 10 p.m. And then I start, I start hearing crying. It was actually my own crying. And it was uncontrollable. I, I had no way of stopping it. And at the same time, the cell started filling up with this resonance. It, it was like I could feel it start getting tighter and tighter. And it wasn't like suffocating tight. It was more like a tight hug. And that hug was squeezing out more tears. And I began to just hear and feel God's presence saying, my gifts and callings are irrevocable. My gifts and callings are, are, are without repentance. I haven't changed my mind. I still want to use you. And I'm just bawling even more because I know that I'm not worthy to even be in his kingdom anymore. That, that moment, that night, that September 18th at 10 PM, that, that moment, that season, that short time frame was my prodigal son moment. The night that I was like, okay, I know I got to get back to the father, but I don't even deserve to be a father's servant, you know? And, uh, and man, that night was the most peaceful sleep I'd had in a long time. And I really feel like God was just laying down beside me, giving me that peace that passes all understanding and waking up the next morning. And every day in, in solitary confinement, I had a different conversation with God. And I, had, there, I spent eight days in there. And eight days, I love it. I love that he made me, I went in on September 18th. It's got an eight in that date. And then he let me stay eight days. And eight's the number of new beginnings. It's like he was forming. It's like he allowed Satan to form me in, in his will for my life in my in my dark years. 
God said, okay, now I'm going to form and I'm going to start with numbers. I'm going to start with so many eights in your name that you're not going to be able to, to stop this new, new thing that I'm doing in your life. And, uh, and so every conversation, you know, one of them was just, all right, God, you want me to preach? You want me to do this? You want me to do that? But man, there's nothing in my natural body. This is the recovery, the recovery story. There's nothing in my body, my natural body. It says, stop drinking Jack Daniels and stop smoking cigarettes. And I literally, you know, the first step of AA, and I think it's very similar to uh, uh, summer recovery, you know, admit that you're powerless. I said, God, there's so, there's nothing in me that wants to stop drinking Jack Daniels or smoking cigarettes. So you're going to have to do something in me that I can't do in myself, that I can't partner with you. And he said, okay, go to sleep. You know, and God, I went to sleep that night. And God does his best work when, when we go to sleep. When Adam fell asleep, he created a woman. You know, when I went to sleep, he delivered me from the desire to drink Jack Daniels and smoke cigarettes. And I didn't know what to think. I was just like, every every time I heard somebody say, I've been delivered of something, I used to make fun of them and go, whatever, you just got some discipline in your life. But now I'm in the middle of experiencing that delivering power of God, what he did in me that I couldn't do, I could not help him with. And so I felt it and I began to thank him. I said, I don't, I don't, I don't know what you did. And I ain't even going to question it, but something's different. Well, Jay Dan, I hate to stop you, but we are out of time. So last question. So if someone's listening and they can really uh, relate to your story. Maybe they've uh, been rebelling, and I love your 99%, 1% illustration. So if someone is given 99%, but they're holding back that 1%, or they can relate, they haven't turned, they haven't had their solitary confinement moment with God, what advice would you give to them? You know, looking back, 99% is not enough to give to God. And 1% is too much to give to the devil. And, and you know, my 1% was cigarette smoke. Everybody's 1% is different. It might be different. Your 1% may be different than mine. Somebody's 1% may be gossiping, maybe, uh, you know, being negative. My negative mindset may be some other addiction, maybe whatever. Your 1% may be different. It may look different. And it doesn't matter what it is, is it matters what it represents. It represents two things. It represents a tie to your old, to your past, to your old ways. And it represents a part of your heart that you haven't yielded to God. One of the conversations that day in, in solitary confinement was, he said to me, he said, you've never given me 100%. You've given me 50 and you've given me 99. You gave the devil 100. Try me at 100 and see what I give you back. Thanks, J. Dan, for sharing the first part of your story with us. Come back next time when J. Dan talks about his life in prison and how God led him to start this incredible ministry called Forgiven Felons. Hey, if you are listening today and maybe you have given God 99% of your life, maybe less, and the enemy has his foot in the door, Maybe the enemy is all the way in, and you have turned your back on God, just like the prodigal son. 
Luke 15 says in the Bible, when the son finally came to his senses, he said, I will go home to my father and say, Father, I have sinned against you and I am no longer worthy to be called your son. So he returned and while he was still a long way off, his father saw him coming filled with love and compassion he ran to his son embraced him and kissed him if you have turned your back on god he is waiting for you to return with open arms he loves you and he can help change your life however if nothing changes nothing changes see you next time